John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 462.jb0816 certificate number 31358 fern fever so zach has a thing called fur inspection where he wants to make sure that the ferns are just so and they have to be exactly the same in every episode he likes that continuity green as ever they look great moisture is nice good is the width off to you no, no. that's right Looks good. That's exactly what it was last time. I gotta say, it's hard to believe I've used the same ferns all these years. Okay, so yeah, we all set? Yep, I'll see you later. Okay. Good work, really good work. I know you love ferns. Uh, you do? Yeah, uh, because everyone loves ferns. I love the ferns of the... Pacific Northwest, it, they remind me of home. I don't really like a, a fern in a doctor's office. Oh, I, you don't? I like um, like the forest moon of Endor filled with ferns. <laughs> do you remember a? Uh, do you remember uh, the fad for fern bars? Yeah, I, I don't even know what era that's supposed to be. Nineties? Yeah, eighties. Oh, it 80s. was a kind of yuppie affectation, um, like the. The original Fern Bar was the first TGI Fridays. Where was this? Like it was on California? The, you know, it was on the Upper East Side in New York City. Really? And uh, and it was like a sort of like a single single uh, lady hangout. Uh, if you were an upwardly mobile Upper East Side gal, you would go hang out at TGI Fridays. That's what I still do in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I just go hang out at TGI Fridays, and I assume that's where I'm going to meet the coolest people. And they had, uh, you know, they were, they had ferns, potted ferns, sort of hanging ferns as a form of decoration. But when we say fern bar, we don't just mean a place that has more than the usual number of ferns, right? That's a signifier for a certain kind of a scene. A certain kind of scene, right. And a fern bar was a, uh, it was, it became a derogatory term for a sort of yuppie uh, bar with brass and... Is the idea that it's not authentic, that it's not like a, it's a dive bar would be cool, but this seems like it's been overly designed and curated. No, I think it was more that ferns, um, well, ferns are culturally, traditionally thought of as a very feminine plant. Uh, They are a very sensual plant, um, for starters, 
They grow in moist climates. Um, moist is this is the most sensual amount of humidity. It is the, it is a sensual amount of humidity. It like, is the most sensual word. A lot of people don't like the word moist. You know, it's it's a trigger word. I'm I'm indifferent to the word, but I just mean that level of dampness is the most sensual level of dampness. It is, and the the you the don't want to be you don't want to be a, a, a desert or a flood. Exactly. <laughs> Either thing, not as sensuous as uh, as moist. S- slight uh, droplets of moisture and collecting on are, something. Ferns are feathery. They um, you know they inhabit sort of warmer. Uh, areas of colder climates, you mm-hmm. know, it's a, they're kind of um, they do seem lush. They're luxuriant. lush. They're bird-like, and and they have traditionally been been uh, the, been regarded as a as a plant that can that communicates a kind of erotic nature. So when when well, fir- they're covered with little spores, they right? have little spores. Like they have little um, reproductive things all over their bottoms. They do. Don't we all? They do. Uh, and they actually, ferns are very interesting uh, botanically because they have they have two very distinctive forms, right? The fern that we think of is not its final form, or rather it's only one of its two forms. The, the, is this like alien? Like you learn in the second movie, there's like a different, bigger kind of fern that's not the feathery green one? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, the, the other kind of fern is actually a smaller, more mossy-like plant, but they're they're actually two kind of separate plants, and when you see, it's the same species but a different life cycle, or yeah. are they, or oh, they're different part of their a so the, part of their life. The fern that we think of is called a diploid sporophyte, which is one of its phases. Um, but the and the sporophyte forms spores mm-hmm. on its underside, which then propagate themselves, and uh, and their next iteration is a kind of moss that you wouldn't look at and think had anything to do with ferns. And the moss is called the prothalia or, or so rather the, uh, the, the sporophyte drops a prothalia, which then produces the haploid gametophytes, which are this sort of moss that lives a life cycle of its own and then produces both sperm and egg which it then releases into its moist climate and the sperms find the eggs or rather the sperm without ever having to go to a TJF Fridays. They just float in their little moist environment or they can, you know, you can, they can be propagated at this stage. And then those, the, the, the product of the union of those sperm, sperm, Fern sperms, fern sperms, and fern eggs then produces it. it begins back, back the cycle to the over. Yeah, back to. I'm the having flashbacks fern. to some seventh grade biology class where we had to study the diploid and the haploid life cycles. And uh, yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not. It's not a happy memory for yeah, me. Yeah, there will be a test. I don't want to. Rem- I don't want to have to remember all this. All of this was unknown to botanists and people in general until the the later part of the 18th century. Really? Yeah. So it was... Ferns were just growing under our noses the whole time, doing their dirty little spore play and then their sperms and their eggs. And we had no idea what we were watching. Because although although ferns are, um, you know, are a flowering plant, they don't produce seeds. So it wasn't clear to... 
people who wanted to grow ferns. Like exactly. You can't be Johnny Fernseed. Yeah, you can't. You can't just take the seeds and spread them across the world. You have to find. You can take. You can find the spores and then grow the spores. We grow the spores, then we eat the spores, <laughs> then we sow the spores. Uh, but it, but it, because there are many phases to the life cycle, and because the the requirements of these different parts of the firm reproductive cycle, you know, they need a kind of different environments uh, meant to be, you know, the drier season and the wetter season. Uh, it was, it wasn't clear how to grow ferns. So does that mean that the, this eighties era critique of fern bars is kind of some early men's rights thing? Well, like, look you, at this kind of lame ladies thing going on here the critique was yeah it was a that fern bars were for f- feminized men or it was a it was a sensitive g- 80s men yeah it was an 80s kind of uh put down of what became it was it was sort of simultaneous to the put down of yuppie greed sure but it was the cultural side of it which was the, the, the it was the yuppies were no longer the rough and tumble kind of yeah. American if you're soul. A, if you're a L.A. Law Corbin Burnson type, you, you hate these bars that are for L.A. Law Jimmy Smiths and Blair Underwood types. It's exactly right. It's the that's, L.A. That's Law a reference schism. that will help people a lot. <laughs> I do remember that the uh, when Star Trek. Uh, do you, don't you love it when things get brought back to Star Trek? Sure, on thank this goodness you're here. You know, when they brought it back in the 80s and then the captain was kind of a, a sensitive, bald British, I guess French, European man, instead of a rough and tumble Final Frontier Kirk type. Final Frontier? <laughs> we are going to get by with a little help from our Franz on this show, aren't we? Uh, the, uh, the criticism was that the new Enterprise looked like a fern bar. Yeah. Because the, the bridge was not like, it didn't have battle stations. It had like these kind of curved lines and carpeting up the sides of the walls. A lot of brass rails. And, 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 a, and a therapist sitting there in case anybody had, was having a bad time at work. Mixed drinks. It wasn't, so it didn't, it didn't literally have ferns, but I, I heard it compared to a fern bar many times. And that was kind of the sneering, you know, the Enterprise is gay now. Well, if you think about, remember the Which phase offensive. from that, from just before that period, the macrame terrarium that hung yes. in a kind of macrame hammock, a sort of like a... Yeah, you, like put, a, you put your plant in a literal macrame pouch. But it, yeah, it was in kind sack. of an, an open glass ball that had some hummus in it and then, <laughs> and then or pumice, and then it had... I don't uh, think it had hummus. <laughs> it had, it's, not, it's not an appetizer. It had a growth media, and, and then it had lights of, lots of little plants, and ferns grew pretty well in there. Anywhere that you can kind of condense moisture um well that was my next question does the does the elusive life cycle of the fern make it hard to domesticate and it's a super common house plant it it, it would be like having pandas in your house despite the fact that it's very hard to get them to get it on it uh it became uh less difficult to propagate sperms with the invention of i'm sorry ferns what what invention will help me (laughs) propagate sperms so it became less difficult to propagate ferns with the invention of the hothouse or the the um, ah. the greenhouse, and the greenhouse was originally uh, 
was originally invented or sort of accidentally invented by a man named Nathaniel uh, Bigel, or I'm sorry, Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward, who was interested in studying ferns, but he couldn't get them to he couldn't propagate them, and he couldn't get them actually to live in London where he lived at the I, time. I was about to assume he's in he's in Britain yeah. where the the climate is gray and awful and not fern friendly. But in in industrial England in the early 19th century, London was so polluted that uh, the fairly delicate fern life cycle couldn't couldn't um, it couldn't oh, wow. thrive. And so Ward was interested in ferns. Ferns had started to become uh, like plants of curiosity in that late 18th century, early 19th century period where they seem exotic and tropical in a way, I'm guessing. And they started to be, uh, there'd been quite a bit of like plant fever, not fever, but, but scientists were very interested in plants and had been exploring all the seeded plants and the fruiting plants. We remember that from our Alexander Humboldt, you know, people would just get excited if somebody showed them a hundred new jungle plants with weird looking nuts or something. But ferns were kind of all over Britain and, um, and they were, they were recognized as an interesting other. And the fact that they weren't, the fact that they didn't produce seeds became kind of curious. Ward was interested in them. He couldn't get them to live. He got frustrated and sort of abandoned his fern fantasy and started, you know, uh, again, in the style of the time, decided he was going to start investigating moths. And so he was, he was, uh, he was trying to cultivate these little chrysalis of worms trying to grow into moss or he, into moths. He was a mo- moth. He was a mothman. He was a little bit of a proto mothman. Mm-hmm. And he would put the, he put the little, uh, mo- the little worms under a glass, one of those glass enclosures that you would use to, to keep your Wolverine doll now away from dust or whatever, you know, like, little, like one of those bell jars from the bell from jar. the ticker tape uh, yeah. entry, literally a bell jar. And he found that the that the humid environment within the bell jar, uh, sp- uh, ferns started to to grow and oh. and thrive. And he immediately this is the penicillin story, except right. except all we get out of it is a, is a lovely uh, bar plant. He was thrilled. He was thrilled that he was growing. Ferns. Now suddenly, he abandoned his Mothman pursuits, and he built a a little house called a Wardian Case, a little indoor glass enclosure big enough to grow a fern, and suddenly was able to keep ferns alive in London. This is about this is you know eighteen thirty. So at this point, nobody had ever built a hothouse and said, right. "Hey, we can grow uh, cucumbers in February. This is going to rule." Right. Wow. So. You know, hothouses are very important for agriculture today, but it was just invented by some guy tinkering with his, with his wardian cases. He saw he saw that a that a bell jar with a with some life in it could you know with a little soil in the bottom. That's great. Was a place that he could that he could keep ferns alive, and so this spread, kind of, um, it spread rather quickly within the community of lay scientists, people interested in. In uh, I mean, we've covered quite a few of them. In, in yeah, in amateur the botanists are are like at least half of the omnibus at this point. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, so there started to be a kind of interest in, uh, in home gardens cultivation of um, the, all of this goes along with 
the period of industrialization and the growth of London as a, and, and the growth of a middle class. Uh, prior to this, gardening as a uh, artistic exp- exploit was reserved for the upper classes because how, how how could anyone else afford a decorative garden, right? Gardens were just the the, the real estate space alone, right? And, and the and the work, the time to work mm-hmm. a a flower garden. No one, you know, if people were gardening, they were gardening for food. But with the rise of an industrial middle class, each little townhouse in London had its own little plot of land in the back and in the front. You know, little gardening spaces that. You could just leave bare earth, but but of course you were interested in in decorating them, and you had the you had a little bit of leisure time. It was possible to start to pursue these kind of uh, a, a little bit of naturalism, a little bit of of decorative art. Yeah, in an agrarian society, nobody has a nobody has a little vegetable patch that they don't want to come home to, right? Like right. It, it would be like, well, I guess today people come home from their computer programming jobs and they. And they, you know, write their own computer programs at home for fun too. But farmers didn't do that. No, less likely to. I mean, maybe, maybe the maybe a, they're all tuckered out. A farm wife would have a little garden of flowers, but but even those would probably end up getting eaten. Immediately prior to this, right? The the um, and and it almost could be its own its own omnibus, and probably should. But the Dutch went through a phase where. Uh, where they had a, a like a, almost a national lust for tulips to the extent that tulip collecting rare varieties of tulips became investment properties. People were spending hundreds of of what what you would have said hundreds of pounds, you know, thousands of dollars on guilders, whatever a, they had. guilders, right? <laughs> a, a, a single on a single tulip bulb. Yeah, it started. So it started out as an actual aesthetic thing. But then it quickly turned from a hobby into a legit economic bubble, kind of like we saw with Beanie Babies. And you see it, you see it in the Netherlands now. I mean, propagation of tulips is a huge industry here in the Northwest. We have a whole tulip festival. Um, Are you tulip festival years old? Do you have to go out to the tulip festival every not year? Yet, not yet. Not yet. Our little girl has not. Oh, she's been to the tulip festival once, and she was awed by it. But she went with her nana. And so I may be. Well, that's who it's for. It's it's for nanas. I may be escaping the tulip fest. It may be my daughter and her grandmother go to the go to that. It is nice. There's a field, and it's all one color. You isn't that delightful? I think you reported to me from the tulip fest last year. You you sent me a text. I reported. Yeah, you said like I'm at the tulip. (laughs) fest. Your roving correspondent. (laughs) You sent me sent me some photographs of giant fields full. I don't know if I was there last year, but I've definitely been there with the kids and with grandma before. Maybe the year before. Uh, And yeah, if you're used to seeing a field that's all one color and that color is brown, this is a good chance to see a field that's all one color and that field is canary yellow. Yeah, canary yellow or or uh, piebald. Yeah, or crimson or something. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. 
Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So tulip lust was a, was, but I mean, of course, a tulip is a flower. It's, it requires that it, or it's a bulb, but you know, it, it does require, require a certain amount of care and tending but it's also obvious how to grow a tulip were there tulip bars oh boy i don't well no i think people were just inventing bars at that point in time bars with themes amsterdam is tobacco bars yeah amsterdam is still ahead of the curve when it comes to theme bars so i wouldn't be surprised there are so many fern bars in amsterdam too i've been to a lot of them different kind of fern Uh, so and the, so the arrival of the Wardian case allowed uh, these sort of early Victorians to get into the home cultivation of plants, and it also it also sparked an orchid craze mm. uh, in at the same period. We're we're not going to cover the orchids in this entry of the omnibus, but but uh, hot house flowers. Yeah, right? suddenly you can grow your own exotic stuff. Right, but ferns conveyed. Uh, a particular kind of Englishness. There was a wholesomeness to them, despite them being such a such a uh, not. I wouldn't call them a turgid plant, but uh, they grow in cool, moist climates, right? Do. So you could tramp around parts of of the British Isles and see ferns. You could, and this also, again, it was maybe a perfect storm of circumstances. But this uh, this was a period when roads were getting built into wilder parts of England, where the railroad was expanding like the 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 county of Devon only got a railroad at the end of the 19th century and so before that it was a kind of inaccessible uh, area that that an intrepid adventurous couple or family would go for a vacation isn't it still called the great western railway yeah, as if they've opened up some all the way out to, remarkable new frontier wow devonshire yeah out to, out to penzance which <laughs> uh you know is about the same distance as as eugene is from us right now <laughs> but uh and but also roads and railways were going up into the north and into scotland in particular and these were areas where uh where there were a greater variety of ferns like ferns tend to tend to be more prevalent in northern climates and and southern Scotland was in some for a lot of fern species was sort of the the southernmost place that they would grow so you could you could trek up to Scotland and have access to all these other varieties of fern that that maybe you'd never seen before and mutations of there ferns. is a great variety of ferns right like yeah. we're all picturing kind of the standard talk show set fern but you know there's horsetails and there's fiddleheads right. i mean these are all common ferns that look very different there's yeah. maidenhair ferns i guess there's a literally a fern named for pubic hair there is and ma- maidenhair ferns were a euphemism for for the 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 downy pubic hair of a 
of a maiden. Well, so is there a sexual component to this new fascination with all these kind of lonely amateur botanists huddled over their <laughs> Wardian cases? <laughs> well, it became a very popular uh, diversion for young women who had a lot of, uh, you know, young women in the Victorian time were also interested in science and also interested in nature. And it was maybe the first time that a that there was a, a kind of independent movement of young women trying to get out of the house, out of the out into the country themselves, and going and chasing ferns was um, was considered maybe a whole, more wholesome pursuit, or one that you could imagine young women being a, sort of allowed by their by the culture of the time to go. I mean, more than going to a, like a, on a chewing tobacco expedition, like going and collecting ferns. Is it a little bit domestic? Are they going to bring them home to brighten up their, their space? So that's why it's okay for a young lady. So, so collecting ferns became a, um, ferns were, were decorative, but they were also fetish items, right? I mean, if you had a kind of fern that, no one else got their hands on. It was a sign of your intrepidude. It was also, a, it was just like collecting beanie babies, as you say. Um, or butterflies. People back then had lots of kind of natural beauties. that they, they would run around England with a net or whatever. This, again, in, as part of this perfect storm, uh, was happening contemporaneously with the development of the arts and crafts movement and Victorian ornamentation. One of the one of the defining characteristics of Victorian architecture was a kind of uh, desire to, it was a revival period where different styles of the past, colonial or uh, Greco-Roman or uh, Anglo-Japanese, different styles were all being combined, revived, and also modified in pursuit of of a sort of, a decorative style that was extremely busy. And this was, uh, this was a style that was used to decorate the new drawing rooms of, uh, a burgeoning middle class. Again, you have all these people in London or Manchester who have, who have moved to the city. They have homes with gardens, but the homes also are places to entertain and places where you would decorate to describe not just your own, um, uh, sophistication, but also your aspirations, your desire to one day visit the Orient or to be thought of as a learned person, a culture uh, and the idea of your average person being cultured, cultured in a way that would have only been accessible to a, a, an aristocrat prior. Now you as a, as a manager of a textile company could also read poetry aloud and have a library of your own. And manufacturing makes this possible, right? There's, there's, there's pottery and textile and design going on on a larger scale and people are turning out beautiful work. Uh, a lot of natural nature motifs, right? Mm-hmm. In this arts and craft for my time wandering around the Victorian Albert museum, I get a feeling that there's lots of kind of elaborate natural motifs. That's right. In the this William stuff. Morris, uh, have you seen my William Morris wallpaper? Do you have some in your home, in your house? Yeah, just this summer. We, Where uh, is it? So, I, so in my office, when they redid my office and put it in the shelves, they it turned out it was all going to be this awful battleship gray. And I discovered this too late, and I said, I don't want to live in an office where everything's 
this awful battleship gray. And they're like, no, no, you're going to love it. I don't know if I want the shelves and the walls and the trim and everything to be battleship gray. How can you even see the color of the things behind all of your Star Trek uh, figurines <laughs> and your giant like Saturn V Lego rockets? My and- 60 Totoro's. <laughs> well, th- I think that was their response. They were like, you're going to put books on these shelves. Right. They did not say you're going to put uh, a complete spider-man into the spider-verse action figure collection on these shelves no. but, but maybe they were thinking it. They, they weren't even sure that you were going to have every superman comic all <laughs> compiled in giant binders so you're gonna put books on these shelves you're gonna it's not it's, it's not gonna be this awful tomb-like gray space but anyway they finished it up and i put books on the shelves i don't actually have that many action figures but i'm, mm, I'm sure there's some depends on i'm sure there's some you're stuff comparing them to <laughs> anyone listening to this show who thinks they have a lot of action figures I have like one one hundredth the action figures. Uh, and I put books on the shelves and I thought, nope, this still... You still hate the gray. It's a battleship gray. So I saw this William Morris wallpaper. Like I've always loved that kind of just yeah. very intricate, floral kind of, you know, the the natural look of the... And there's the, because of the repetition of it, the tiling of it, it's kind of got a mathematical purity too, where you're kind of mixing the... The, you know, the beautiful curves of nature with this very precise mathematical repetition. Well, and it's like an Escher yes. drawing in it, a sense. It, it just... It, it tessellates. Yeah, recapitulates itself. And I guess even the spirals of a fern or whatever have math in them. They have the Fibonacci Super sequence fractal, or whatever. yeah. So, yeah, so I've always liked that kind of fractal quality. And so I found this William Morris wallpaper that... I, I, there were two that I liked. One is kind of seaweed. It's called seaweed. And it's kind of got a... So not kind of seaweed. Yeah. It doesn't look like seaweed, seaweed, though. Oh. It's called seaweed, but it doesn't really look like you're putting kelp on your wall. It's just kind of got a, a tendril-like, vine-like quality. And another one that had blackberries. I think it's called bramble. And I thought, these are both very northwesty, blackberries, seaweed. Mm-hmm. So I ended up putting beautiful William Morris bramble wallpaper in my office and covering up a lot of the battleship gray between the shelves. When did this happen? Over the summer. Have you not seen it? I don't. Well, have I been in your office since the summer? Maybe. I mean, it's we're we're only recording in early fall. You could, you know, you you don't usually go there to make fun of my uh, of my anime no, figures. I may have missed you, it. You do that from afar. I may have been marveling at your uh, your Millennium Falcons, <laughs> your Millennia Falcons, <laughs> Millennia Falcon. <laughs> and then we did a wall of our bedroom in the seaweed one. Oh, so nice. we have little William. I've definitely we have little not been up there. Arts and cra- no, you're not invited. No, I know. Uh, so there's a little kind of arts and crafts stuff in my house. And I guess I'm one of these uh, RV East middle-class Manchester merchants. That's right. Who's, who's, who's super excited to have some of the, the beauties of of the uh, mass production of the natural world on my walls. Well, Victorian style was like, uh, how much different stuff can you put into a space, right? You're decorating it at every level, at the level of the wainscoting, at the level of the of the uh, wallpaper than the, and wallpaper itself was a sign of wealth. Um, it's not just bare plaster, right? It's uh, and, and also the technology of, Oh yeah. You've a, got a print affixing rolls of paper to, mm-hmm. uh, to another media that was then yeah, that would light enough to put up on a wall. I mean, wallpaper is weird when you think about it, you're turning a whole wall into a, a picture, right. a repeated picture. Yeah, well, what if instead of this, it just had 600 roses, you know? Right. But why not? I did it. uh, I found a William Morris calendar 
1991, I moved to Seattle. I went to the 99 cent store and there was a William Morris calendar there for 99 cents. I wasn't familiar with him at that point, but I loved the, I loved the images and I bought the calendar and put it up on the wall. And then at the end of the year, I felt like I couldn't just dispose of these beautiful little, little patterns, these beautiful little arts. And so I took out my scissors and I cut different elements out of the, out of the, uh, William Morris patterns that I liked and I glued them to the front of my little Yamaha guitar. That was the only guitar I owned at the time. And then I covered them with a layer of lacquer. I didn't know you had a William Morris guitar. And so I built, I made this guitar that had various William Morris patterns all superimposed on one another, kind of creating a, like a jungle depth. And that was the, my main songwriting guitar well into well into the late nineties, I wrote, I wrote every song. Um, I wrote like three albums worth of songs on that thing. Do you feel like the, the visual design like was, was, ca- was carried into the sounds? It was of a- a very unusual. It was a Yamaha 75. So a small, you know, like not a full dreadnought, but like a, a parlor guitar size. It was my main axe. I was always very proud of it. Very proud of my little collage work that I did with William Morris stuff. Did all your high school friends who loved going to heavy metal shows with you, hard rock shows with you, were they just appalled when they saw that you had such a fruity guitar? This was the nineties. So it was the grunge era. And, um, although the grunge era is not one that we think of as a, as a big period of decorative arts. Um, (laughs) there was one decorative art that, uh, was pretty prevalent in the rock culture here during grunge times, which was, painted leather jackets. Hmm. And so you could take your biker jacket and paint it with flowers or, uh, you know, elaborate patterns. And it, it could be elaborate psychedelic kind of yep. stuff. And there were actually people in Seattle who made a, made it their job to like paint other people's leather jackets. I did, I didn't have the guts to have my leather jacket painted with flowers. I felt like it was mostly that I couldn't choose. I couldn't decide on, on a pattern. I couldn't, I couldn't commit to ruining my jacket with one pattern. Kind of like I don't have any wallpaper. It's, it's just that it's just, there's too, too many choices to this day. You do, right. you do not have a painted leather jacket. I still don't send John Roderick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a 44 long. Uh, so the, so the fad started to uh, really, really bloom because of all these elements that we've discussed. Uh, not bloom, it started to sporify. Right. Uh, it's not a flowering plant. And so it was a it was a thing that the upper classes, the middle classes, and even the working classes could equally enjoy because ferns were in nature in plenitude. You could go on an adventure to the forest, collect a fern, bring it home, and with the aid of a little hothouse or, you know, or, or, or the, the growing understanding of how to, how to propagate ferns, you could build a little fern garden in your, in the backyard of your, of your new industrial tract house. Misters had not been invented. So you'd have to. Probably misters were, uh, the, 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 the recognition that you need to keep these plants moist probably was part of the, part of the the motivation to invent a mister. You had to bring over your pensioner grandpa who sprays a little when he talks. Oh, that's (laughs) terrible. Uh, It became such a fad. And there were a lot of books written about it. You know, there was a, uh, still in the early part of the, the 19th century, a book 
called the uh, history of British ferns came and sort of, uh, again, inspired a larger appreciation of ferns as a, as an element. It's funny that fads could be nature. Today, a fad would not be nature. Like ginkgo is not going to, ginkgo trees are not going to be in next year. Like maybe as a supplement, they will. But, uh, you know, back then the hot new thing could be a flower like or a, a mushroom. Right. And not, not just hot, but overwhelming. It became, it became a, um, it became a kind of fever. Ferns appeared everywhere. Not just, not just, um, living ferns in people's homes, but fern motifs. As you said, at the Victoria Albert Museum, you would see them in pots. You would see or on pottery. And one of the things about a fern is that it's mostly a flat leaf. So it lent itself very well to being, uh, you know, kept in a book. You could put a fern frond in a book as a, like collecting stamps almost. And then that, that flattened fern frond, would translate very well to, to a pot or to uh, to to wallpaper, to a, a tapestry even. So, ferns kind of, uh, well, they set themselves up for this kind of treatment. You know, they were asking for it. Basically. <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com start there are quite a few varieties of fern in the uk that are fairly rare in in the uk again because of the latitude but also just they're they're like any living organism they're there's a kind of scarcity. Uh, they seem delicate it, ferns. They, they, they are they have, delicate. If you want, you know, if you're a fern and you want to have a family, it seems to take a lot of work. You got all the di- like. I don't have to worry about diploid versus haploid cycles. Yeah, there's in, a, in my sex life a ton of work, and also you need to be well, sort of like your sex life. It needs to be kept in a shady environment, a, <laughs> a little wardian case. <laughs> yeah, a little a dark bedroom that you don't let your friends ever come up and see. <laughs> the wallpaper is fantastic. But people in in chasing after ferns began to tromp deep into the Scottish and Devonshire uh, remote spots. There were there were people then that made a business of collecting rare ferns and bringing them down to the railway, railway station to sell them to uh, Victorians that weren't quite as intrepid. This seems akin to Mary Anning selling her fossils on her shelves. That, it's know? very akin to it. Another kind of a flat thing from that period that, that looks great as a, as a motif. And makes you seem in your drawing room like a yes. fairly sophisticated Learned, person. Yeah. Uh, and it became, it became almost a dangerous hobby. People died climbing cliff sides to, For a fern. to retrieve a fern from a, from a rocky crag. First blood to the ferns. They're winning the, the evolutionary war. 
But also several fern varieties like the oblong woodsia and the alpine woodsia became endangered. I was going to ask, was there an ecological cost? I mean, I remember when I was reading up on geocaching, uh, a lot of land administrators hate it because you have people tromping off into places where they don't want footsteps. They're compacting soil, they're creating trails, they're killing roots and knocking down underbrush. I mean, it's why they don't tell us where the lar- world's largest sequoia exactly. is. Exactly. It's right? somewhere in this forest, but if everybody knew, they'd they tromp around. They just stand near it, and that's not good. There are actually some old growth trees here in Seward Park in Seattle that they have taken the signs away. They used to have signs there that said, like, this is the largest old growth tree in the in Seattle, and they took those down because people were, were killing the roots, tromping around. The uh, There were some fern varieties that were thought to be extinct. And whether or not this is an ecological crisis depends on how important any individual fern species is uh, to you or anyone else. And the thing about ferns is that they aren't really – wildlife does not really graze on ferns. Uh, they don't – they're not important as part of the um, – as part circle of, of life? Yeah, what we think of as the cycle of life that at least rises up to the level of mammal. Um, in the Northwest, we like to think that eating ferns is some sort of delicacy and that Native Americans utilized every part of the fern. It's because it's, you know, locally foraged stuff on a menu makes you feel like you're really doing your part for the earth. Right. And, and Native Americans here did eat ferns, but they regarded it as a starvation food. It wasn't something that they like sprinkled into their diet. I think I'm the same way. Diet. Like I'm, I'm not eating fiddlehead ferns as a main course. Have you eaten a fiddlehead fern? Yeah, they're not bad. They're, they actually are not native to Washington. They're only available in BC, but they get huh. kind of sent down. In Alaska, there are fiddlehead ferns everywhere. And we used to grab grab the tips of them and saute them in butter. But it was it just like butter. Like it's just like butter. Everything's it's good in butter. Salted butter. You could you could eat a eat a birch bark bark with it. And I tried to get my kids to eat escargot that way. It's just gonna taste like butter and garlic. Nope, they were not having it. I, I like escargot. Me too. Personally. They taste like butter and garlic. It's butter and garlic. Give it to me. Um, the the craziest thing for me about the fern craze. First of all, it it stayed pretty localized to England. Um, it did transfer to the United States a little bit, uh, but nowhere near the way it sort of took over the English mind. And it's it falls very much into that category of of British eccentricity. Right. Like we're an island and we're doing our own thing. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't even, you know, it didn't even like become popular in Ireland. It was, and I don't even, I'm not sure that the Scots embraced it as so much as it was the it was the English coming up to Scotland and raiding their their fern bounty and taking it home. In in our day, fads are very short lived. I mean, did this burn out quickly or it not? It did not. It huh. uh, it started it started in the eighteen thirties. Became extremely popular in the eighteen fifties, and persisted into the twentieth century. Ferns uh, and fern pursuits, I guess. Uh, this is, it seems, you know, it turned less like a fever into just some weird thing, like, you know, recording the times at which trains come by. Yeah. That a certain kind of nerdy British person just enjoys. Well, except fern motifs, fern, you know, ferns as almost a, a uh, like a emblem yeah. of the British Empire. Uh, it wasn't until kind of the 
the era where Victoria died and Victorian style started to wane and uh and the uh, the arrival of electricity widespread electricity sort of made the wardian case and the the little greenhouse feel anachronistic because those were areas you created an environment using using the sun as the right. source of power. You think of that as a very Victorian thing, right? The Crystal Palace yeah. and the the palm trees at Kew Gardens. I mean, this the is international all, exhibition. Exactly. This is all very 19th century, the idea that you can have a, a warm room for your plants. But if you think about a fad, and and a fad that was that was um widespread and and really passionately pursued that lasted from 1830 to 1915. It's it's bonkers. And and really we still see those fern motifs. If you if you look at them in in antiques, they're they they persist. It would be like thinking of a mo- motif from the 1930s that we still love today. And that's there's there's not that many. Not that many. Yeah. Um, what, what were the big furors back in the 1930s that have persisted? Well, if you think about Art Deco as a style, yeah. it did have a resurgence sort of around the fern bar times. Uh, but that was a product of Miami Vice and the <laughs> the popularization of Miami Beach and its Deco hotels. Uh, ferns now are playing a very personal role in my own life because I just bought a house. Congratulations. Thank you. And that house has its own ravine. And that ravine is full of invasive species. Uh, what do you got down there? I got some English ivy, which was popularized as a garden uh, ornamentation here in the Northwest in the mid-20th century, imported from England and become uh, become free of its bounds, its garden bounds. Took over like kudzu. And now it is kudzuing our, our forests here. Uh, also English holly. Oh. I don't know if you're starting to see a theme. Uh, English laurel. It's always the colonizers, man. <laughs> and all those the British Empire are choking my ravine. And so I've started to talk to the local administrations here in King County that have, that have groups of people that, that, that combat. Have, that all have choked ravines. Well, they have choked ravines and they combat invasive species as part of rest, restoring salmon habitat and whatnot. I, I spent some time with one of these uh, older gentlemen the other day when I was clearing out some blackberries in a park. And he was explaining, you know, we did I tell you this? We cleared all the blackberries off of this beautiful tree. Yeah. And then he was he was like, yeah, now we're going to chop down the tree. That's English laurel. <laughs> no! <laughs> this idea that we need to try and restore the native plants uh, to Northwest environments that have been you know, colonized by decorative plants, uh, is it's super popular among certain sort of University of Washington types. I'm trying to get them to declare my ravine a uh, like a, a an endangered site, and what I want is to replace those uh, replace those invasive plants with ferns, native like, ferns, like and big native sort trees. of ferns, like yeah, are those big, big big ferns that will stabilize the sides of the of the creek and so forth. But one of the other things that's down in that ravine is stinging nettle. Mm. And stinging nettle is a terrible sort of plant here in the Northwest. It's also, a lot of these plants have become so established in the forests that they're described as naturalized. Are stinging nettles not native? Stinging nettles are a product of, their, they have, they've also been imported. Nettles are, are, are a thing used as food. I've eaten pesto made out of nettles. Once you, once you cook it, 
it's not poisonous, but every time me and the kids have gone to go gather nettles for, uh, for pesto or something, cause my kids think it's fun. Like we all wear gloves and somebody still gets stung. They are awful. Are they native to the Northwest is the question out. And I guess they are native. I assumed right? they were. Yeah, I think they are. And why would anybody propagate them? <laughs> uh, but the nettles in in my area are pretty awful. And my uh, it was not very long ago. I was on a little trek, and I had done some little. I'd, I'd read some naturalists leading up to it, and one of the things I read was that if you get stinging nettles, there is a kind of fern. Uh, which is an older style of fern I've called, heard this. Called, a, called a bracken fern uh, or a dock fern. And it's the sort of fern that actually has, rather than the fronds being just sort of giant fronds that come out from a central hub, these ferns are ones that have a stalk and then branches. And the that, branches kind of look fern-like. The branches are fern-like. Yeah. And this naturalist said, if you get stinging nettles, Find this bracken fern, which grows the same place as nettles do. Grind up the leaves, br- you know, bruise them or, or, you know, spit in your hand and create a little, a little, uh, balm. A bracken, little, bracken paste. Bra- bracken paste and spread it on the, on the, the nettle and it will cure the, the burning. I've heard of this as, as Indian lore that, you know, everybody who lived here, the indigenous people all knew that you got to put fern on your nettle burns. Well, so we were out walking and my daughter just sort of reached down and was grazing her hand along these, be, these beautiful sort of plants sprouting up along the side of the trail. They're tall. They're along every trail. And I looked down and just at the moment that she realized that all of a sudden her hand was on fire and she started screaming staring at her hand, wondering what had happened, you know, ah! and because it's a physical thing, little, little filaments are stuck in you and that's why it burns. Little hypodermic needles. Yeah. And I looked around, you know, as a father, of course, your kid starts screaming like that. You're like, what do I do? And I thought bracken fern. <laughs> and I looked and sure enough, there it was right at my feet. And I grabbed it, uh, started rubbing it between my hands to create a kind of, you know, paste spit in my hands a few times, made this uh, like dark green salve and spread it on my daughter's hand. And the relief was instant. You watched her stop, you know, she stopped crying. She looked in amazement at this, at her, you know, once burning hand and then looked up at me as though I were the, you know. The god of the woods. The ultimate Davy Crockett. (laughs) And that concludes Fern Fever, entry 462.JB0816, certificate number 31358, in the omnibus. Now, listeners, you no doubt propagate by spores as well. Mm. Uh, You have passed beyond our petty mammalian concerns, and I hope we haven't said anything offensive about your reproductive cycle. I wonder what, what, yeah, what cycle they're in. Which cycle... Is the one that likes omnibus. (laughs) Is it the frond cycle or is it the moss cycle? You spend 10 years as a moss not listening to podcasts. And then (laughs) once you become diploid again, uh, it's like it's one of those middle-aged hobbies you take up, like like model railroads. Yeah. Or banjos. Here, here. You just described my next next plan. (laughs) Model railroads and banjos. The John Roderick in his 50s story. 
so you don't have our petty mammalian concerns like social media, but John and I did. Uh, I have to admit that we were uh, we could be found at John Roderick and at Ken Jennings and jointly at Omnibus Project on many of the finer social media platforms of our day. Uh, all the best, all the best, <laughs> all the great platforms. If you're looking, if you're looking for Omnibus, pla- uh, just go to the best social media platform. Like, don't go to the weird ones. Don't go to Kick. Don't go to. Uh, don't go to Snapchat. We're not there. We I could. Mean, I used to be on Snapchat. We could be on Snapchat. Yeah, but I've never understood. I mean, I was on we, Snapchat for about nine months. We're and- leaving a time capsule. Right. That's the opposite of Snapchat. It's the very opposite of Snapchat. Yes. And Kick, I think, is just for cheating wives. Kick just seems like a fake drug name from a Law & Order SVU. Yeah, that's right. Oh, these kids are addicted to Kick. They're all on Kick these days. We could be on Grinder. You and I both have a, I think, a, a huge, a lot huge of appeal. following. Yeah. Yeah, why aren't we on Grinder? Well, I think it's, again, it's like a thing where if I'm sitting in a restaurant, I do not want anyone to know I'm there. Let alone, like, put a, put myself on an app like, come say hi. No thanks. But you kind of do that sometimes, right? A little bit. When I do a tweet out. Only when you want to deduct the trip. <laughs> uh, uh, people on Facebook uh, found a, a lovely community uh, under the name Futurelings. Mm, nice. um, so please go join in the fun there. Uh, or on Reddit under a similar name, I think. Maybe there's an underscore... Maybe the I is a one. Who knows? I don't know this kind of thing. No. Uh, only John knows and likes Reddit. Yeah. Reap, reap. Uh, the podcast only survives now in its independent status thanks to your uh, generous contributions. If you are uh, financially able and generous of spirit, please go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and do what you can. Uh, if you would like to send us physical artifacts... So here's someone, somebody, uh, Rachel from Sun River, Oregon, just sent us passes to the uh, Oregon Observatory because say what? Because we mentioned uh, uh, giant telescopes in a previous entry. I can't wait. So if you're ever in, and I don't think you or I know where Sun River, Oregon is, but you and I have, uh, you and I have met out in the uh, out in the country of Oregon. Uh, just, we we we're, we met just coming through the rye one time. We love the Beaver State. Yeah. Is it out by Bend? Sun River. Yes, I'm, you know, obviously it's going to be somewhere in the drier part. We don't know that. It is, yes, it is southwest of Bend. Well, no, you don't want to put a telescope anywhere cloudy. Right. There's a reason why Mount uh, Seattle does not have a big uh, Mauna Kea-style telescope. Well, so, you know, southwest of Bend, array. There's there uh, you don't have any light pollution either. Right. But every once in a while, you do have a team of vigilantes that take over a, a national forest <laughs> right. cabin to protest ranching. My brother-in-law problems. is actually a BLM employee in Southern Oregon, and so uh, the nutty ranchers are not just a hypothetical for him. <laughs> He's often in charge of putting up the porta-potties for the protesters. Really? Yes, and the protesters are all just ranchers all head up about how they don't get to do stuff on public lands. You know, a lot of people, uh, I think, in America in our day do not understand how important the Bureau of Land Management is to other parts of the of the West, Mountain West. And Alaska, I mean, BLM is a, is a major enterprise up there. Here's someone who sent us two separate cards with owls on them. When I opened, I don't know what yours says, but when I opened mine, 
it says, I need to try to answer. It says, since Ken is the reigning Jeopardy champion in the room, I assume he has the board. So I'm supposed to answer the Seattle artists for $5 clue. All right. And here's a picture of some uh, art. Looks okay. like a kind of indigenous influence. I'm opening my sealed envelope here. This artist was one of the first to revive the historical ledger art tradition and transformed the style. And there's, there's a lovely kind of a collaged, um, looks like a woman on a horse influenced by uh, some like native petroglyph motifs. This is a very involved letter. All right, so Ken, what who, what is the answer in I, the form of a question? I don't know who this is. I'm going to say who is uh, Smith. No, no. The correct answer is who is Terence Gardipi. Oh, that was going to be my next guess. I was yeah. going to say Terence Gardipi. Well, there is a uh, there was a five dollar prize, and uh, <laughs> John is holding five one dollar bills. And it said here, if Ken answers correctly, please give him the enclosed five dollars. If not, the money is yours. <sighs> Wow, oh, that must sting. That really does. I just lost $5 because of my insufficient familiarity with the work of Terrence Gardipi. I gained $5. And you didn't have to do anything. Just based on you not being smart enough. Please continue to send John money if I get trivia questions wrong. Uh, Put that right in the wallet here. I did the email address. Oh, so if you do want to send us physical media, you can send that to Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long the civilization survived. We may, uh, we may have all become fern food by the time you listen to this. Devoured by ferns. Spurifying in our, in our innards, like popping out of our chests, like, a, like an alien like facehugger. We personally hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear uh, may never come, although you may you may rejoice in it as we fertilized your, your roots. And probably created your ecosystem. Yeah, we are sorry that we helped you. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.